Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 168 with a very, very special guest. He is a co-author of mine, a very awesome author, and the president of the Horror Writers Association. Thank you, John Palisano, for coming on. All right. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here, especially with Animal in the background over the books. That's pretty <laughs> cool. It's like, me like books, me like books. It's awesome. <laughs> I've been using him quite a bit for marketing. I, I, I was really surprised that I would ever use a puppet, but it's just another way to access a different part of my personality, I think. And a lot of fun. I, I, could, I could be a little bit extra, but I wanted to have you on here. It's been a while. Because although we have, you know, we're working on our second book, you did, so you're the author, co-author of Trying to Die in the Pandemic. We're currently working on Try Not to Die in the Wild West. And you're doing the first one of the Try Not to Die bite-sized stories, which will be right. short stories that have an alternate ending. Yeah, I should say a terrible, terrible alternate ending. So thank you so much for doing this with me, have, having the faith in the project. I know as an author, you have so many other things that you want to work on on your own, whether they're short stories or your novels, plus all the responsibilities with Horror Writers Association and life. So to come into, you know, this series, it it definitely meant a lot to me and I do really appreciate it. Well, likewise, and you know, I'd love to write and I'd love to tell stories at the end of the day. And I'm I'm honored to be asked because at the end of the day, I think like for, for folks like us, it's all about that kind of jumping into the sandbox and, and making stories. That's what make drives us and make we, we love that part the most. And I think that's kind of like how I, I picture our collaboration is we're, we're just two kids in a, in a sandbox. And yeah, okay, so we have some, some M80s in there. We're going to blow up our army men together. We're going to light them and go back and we're going to laugh our heads off until our parents pull us. What are you kids doing? And that's kind of how I feel we're doing because whenever, you know, when we were doing the pandemic and we were going back and forth writing the, the kill scenes, I was cracking up. I'm like, what's he going to come up with now? And you're like, you know what? We can go an extra bit here and do this. And I was like, oh my God, you know? Uh, and I was just cracking up. So I love that. That's to me the, the, the favorite part, like bar bar anything else. So it's a pleasure. And I, I know we're, we're doing it again with the Western, which is also a hoot. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, man, it, it is a blast. It is such a treat to be able to work with someone, be able to create with someone. And like you're saying, my favorite memories, like going back to the first time I could actually think about creating was probably maybe fourth grade, just with friends in the backyard, trying to come up with a scene for a little like an action scene. And like, you know, always telling those stories and, but getting your work back, you know, and seeing what you just did with these different death scenes is like, oh my God, like the the scene with the outhouse, like that's awesome, you know? (laughs) And like, those are really cool. So yeah, it's fun. It's a blast, you know? And then there's always, I think one of the things I was concerned with that stars like, okay, well, you know, How's it going to be working with someone else? And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be too pushy. What if they're too pushy? How's it going to work? You know, yeah. but hopefully, hopefully you've enjoyed it. Kevin Anderson had that question. He said, what was the hardest part about writing a, we're not supposed to call them choose your own adventure because I almost got sued by them, <laughs> but a, a choose, you know, pick your path story or whatever. What has been the hardest part with it for you? For me, it's weird because in the first one, every, all the deaths seem to come very easily and naturally. And on the Western, for some reason, I had a weird mental block on some of the deaths. I think the first path I got past, I got through a few, but it was a weird thing because I, I was having trouble visualizing deaths. And I think and I, I thought about it the other day. I was like, why is that? And I think it's because of the character. I really like the character. Not that I didn't like, you know, the characters and try not to die, but I didn't want to see them die. And it was harder. It's like, no, I don't want to go there, you know, you know. So it's weird, right? It's it's a weird kind of dichotomy because you really want to make these characters real and likable and awesome, and then you have to kill them. Mm-hmm. I think on the uh, the pandemic on the boat, one of the hardest ones was the one where he's dying and and picturing his dad when he hits that home run. 
as he's dying. I stopped and I had to go for a walk for like around the block. I'm like, I really went somewhere deep with that one that really got to me. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's not just, you know, these are more than just slashers, I think. They, they are in a lot of ways, but in, uh, there's moments where we really do these really human and painfully human moments. And I think those are, it's really satisfying for that to, to, to go that deep and, and dig up those emotions too. Yeah, and, and I was gonna say, I had initially thought of this series and, and one reason why it took me so long to do a second one as like kind of a, a throwaway, you know, not very important and, you know, lesser literature or whatever else. But yeah, we, 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 we put so much into it. We're, we're still trying to make these characters believable. We want, I want their, you know, we want their deaths to be believable. We want them to, you know, for the reader to feel, to, to and I've told my wife, I'm like, hey, you know, sometimes like if I'm just doing death scenes, death scenes, death scenes, I was like, it's going to affect me a little bit because it's like yeah. we have to put ourselves in that position and actually yeah. try to imagine what it feels like dying. It's one thing to write a, a third person death scene, completely something else to write a first person death scene, I think. True. I think I think you hit the nail on the head because I think if you say you say you're writing a screenplay, you really have that kind of distance. You know, like, you know, Callie sticks the knife into Joey and his guts come out. It's different than when you're like, I feel that the knife go in. And as I feel it, I think of my mom when she, you know, was cutting my birthday cake and you make all these associations and you're like, oh, this is a mind F. You know, I don't think it's swear. You're like, oh, oh, yeah, I, I do all the time. Ah, why did I think that, dude? Come on. <laughs> Killing me here, literally, metaphorically, psychologically, at least. Yeah, no, I think I think it's been... I, I, I've enjoyed it. I think it's a lot of fun, but yeah, being able to go into different worlds, you know, and e every, every co-author has their own flair, has their own style, which is cool, has their own, you know, coming up with the ideas. Like I wouldn't have come up with pandemic. Like that was you same thing with the Western. I never would have written a Western on my own, despite the fact that I love Westerns and I used to watch them all the time and I'm having a ton of fun with it, but I wouldn't yeah. be able to write this book. I wouldn't be able to pull the character out. So I just, I love how it works. I love that you're okay with me twisting things up and, you know, putting my style on a little bit. And then we go back to yours and I, I, I like what we do. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So thank you. I agree. And I think that's one of the other benefits of the series is that we can we can be a little bit more experimental with and, and go out of what we're kind of known for in some ways and kind of like explore these other genres in a really fun and immersive way. Like the pandemic one, I thought we were like, I've, I've always wanted to write something that was on, on a cruise ship, you know, that was kind of different and fun, but I never really found the right thing until this. I'm like, this is just the perfect opportunity to do that. And the artwork is gorgeous too. The artwork is ridiculous on this book, but I have to give a shout out on that. And, and same with the Western. So, you know, I always wanted to do a Western, but I didn't want to do the same Louis L'Amour kind of pastiche that's been done countless times already. Mm. And I've been approached to do those. And I said, I'm just not interested because it's been done literally probably three or 4,000 times at least in the last 20 years. And I thought this is a very different way to do it. And we can explore things in that world that we don't usually see. Now mm -hmm. we're, we're with teenagers, you know, basically older teenagers and, and how do they not die in this environment? That's one thing I've always thought about when watching those movies. What about the kid behind the barrel? What is his life like, you know, or her life like? What is the, the daughter of the madam's life like, you know, what do they do all day? And, and when trouble comes, what if they get, you know, kids, look, we've all been kids and we throw the rocks at, you know, the bad guys because we're, we're, you know, we, we feel like, you know, mortal, nothing can happen to us. But what if they turn on us and then start chasing us and it's a real threat? Mm. And I think that was like a really intriguing, like kind of thing to like say, wow, because you know what, when I was 16 or 17, I would have gotten into this trouble, you know, with people like, you know, and they, you know, and I just thought that that was kind of a really uh, fun and unique thing. And, and they, they do have some really serious challenges like hey, they don't really know how to ride horses so well. So it's kind of funny, you know, in a way. And, and they, they're not great negotiators and, and they're still trying to find themselves and they make some mistakes and some of them are deadly. And, and that's a really fun thing to explore, you know, I think going way beyond the difference. And, you know, I've done a lot of books that are, you know, in different genres. Whenever I write a book, regardless if it's a series, I try to do things that are a little different, like Dust, Dust of the Dead, like a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, it's mediocre and stuff. Well, they're just judging it by the title because the title is misleading in a way. 
because people think it's just zombies because it has the of the dead kind mm -hmm. of you know cliched thing but when you get past the first act and you realize oh my god this isn't really about zombies it's about the dust from the drying zombies that are getting into people the spores from their depth their bodies and they're not creating zombies they're creating these new kind of weird mutants you realize oh crap this isn't really about you know this isn't the walking dead or you know dawn of the dead this is a totally different animal here so i always try to do that i, I did that with ghost heart too with, with vampires i tried to just do something very as different as i could and make make it unique and fun and interesting yeah no that that's a great point i was go going back to the to the new one the western yeah. i say you did an excellent job just the first scene where having them be so far from the town and what that would be like just to live out there and then they have to make this walk you know and just the dangers in that walk for a 16 year old kid and like trying to picture mike is like man what age would i let them go do that you know um, right. and just making it real but now with the dust of the dead i realize this isn't a regular zombie book and i really like the character and what you did with them this was written before the pandemic before yeah. That was very interesting reading that too, knowing, knowing what you went through, knowing just all of LA and everything else. And so reading about LA being shut down by these zombies was kind of a little, little freaky, but with the mentions mention of the flu and this character had been sick a lot. I was wondering how much has sickness been in your life? Did, did you see a lot of sickness growing up or did you have sickness? Did you have health issues? Was that part of something that you've gotten out in your writing? Yeah, I, I grew up, well, first of all, my brother has Tourette syndrome and he had a lot of, and he still has a lot of health problems and we were preemies. So I was always, it felt like if somebody sneezed the town over, I got the flu. I was always sick growing up and it was really frustrating. And I, I grew up in a, a New England town, Norwalk, Connecticut, which I love, but it was, it was a different environment. It was very damp and cold a lot before we, turned into Mars here. So yeah, I, I was sick a lot. I was bedridden a lot. And I had some very, very tough moments. And I remember before I wrote this, I was talking to my mom and she had said something like, well, maybe you were sick all the time so that now when something bad comes, you already have the immunity built up. You know, maybe it was, you know, maybe God's way of kind of like toughening you up and building your, you know, coat of armor, your germ armor against like something like COVID or something. I thought, oh, that's interesting. But so yeah, I mean, that was definitely a, a thing that was on my mind with the character of Mike too. Hmm. And, and, and Mike was interesting because one of the, one of the first reviews gave it a bad review because he wasn't a heroic figure at the beginning of the book. For the first half of the book, he's kind of like tentative and nervous and he doesn't run toward danger. He kind of like shirks from it and he's a little freaked out by it. But by the end of the book, he certainly embraces it. Mm -hmm. When, you know, I don't want to spoil alert, but there he does have that sea change where he changes. But I, I think it, it was really interesting that people, people were really upset at their main character, kind of like not running right away and being, you know, Rick Grimes from the first shot kind of a thing which I, wish I wanted to avoid. I love The Walking Dead. I love all that. I love the Romeros. I love the guys, you know, with the coming right out, like Arnold or whatever. I grew up with that. I love that stuff. But I said, well, what if it takes them a while to get there? What if, the, what, you know, they weren't born that way? Mm -hmm. What if they, find, they, they just have to rise up and they have to just meet the challenge? Something does it. And when, when his girlfriend or fiance starts turning, that's really the catalyst that he says, you know, I got to rise up and, and deal with this. And I thought that was an interesting character arc. It's an extreme character arc for, for the genre, but. I like that much. Like that is, think of everything that would have been lost if there just had been this huge hero and he was going in all brave and strong and taking everyone out. Like that would have, it would have lost the entire story, everything, all everything that you built. So I liked that he was in this position. I liked that he had just gotten this job. I liked that he didn't know how to handle this stuff or what to do. So no, I think that was a very good choice. So, Oh, thank you. And, and yeah. And, and, and his boss, the, the, the fellow that was kind of made to be that kind of tough guy dies early on. And I'm th I was thinking like, people are going to think he's going to be the kind of main dude. And then when you take him out, I thought, well, to me, that's scary. Mm -hmm. What do you do when the, when the, you know, your, your main gun goes down? You know, then it falls, you have no choice but for it to fall and other people that kind of have to rise up and find a way to do that. And that to me is scary. It's kind of like in a horror where they take away the ability of police and the army to kind of 
solve situations in zombie movies. It was kind of a play on that. They, they can't help you. No one can help you. They're all dead. All the military are dead. It's you and the zombies now. What are you going to do? Here's a pipe. Bye. You know? So I figured let's take out all the people that appear to be like the kind of people you'd go to in a zombie apocalypse mm-hmm. and then yeah. see what happens. And I think it's more realistic. I think most people, like, I'm not running towards danger. I'm not running towards zombies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to make this smart move. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and realistically in real life, who would? If we really saw that in real life, I, I think we'd all kind of shut down and be like, oh, my God, we got to call the cops. I don't want to deal with this. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's no. easy to say, on, on you know, when you're critiquing a, a creative movie or a book, but in real life, yeah, what if one was like outside your house? Mm-hmm. And what if what if you're uh, the other the other fascinating thing I wanted to explore that's not real that wasn't really explored in a lot of movies is. If, if the people were holding on to their relatives in the dead. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that was really scary. And they were, they did retain parts of their personality. And to me, that was like probably one of the most heartbreaking and, and worst things is how do they go in and deal with that? That's their mom. There's still 10% of their mom in it, but shit, she's a zombie. You know? <laughs> yeah. What would you do if that was your yeah. kid? Yeah. that you know? would, be... would you be like, or would you be like, you know what, I'm going to hold out because there could be an antidote. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think I think it's, yeah, that, that would be such a tough situation. That would be yeah. so hard. And being on the reclamation crew would not be a fun thing at all. No. Now, and one other really cool thing, I'm not going to say what it was, but there was a huge plot twist that I did not see coming. So I thought that was really cool. <laughs> Part two, Voices of the Dead. Now, is that already written? Are you are you writing that now? What is happening with that? Voices of the Dead. What what's in the book is what's been written so far. That's okay. Pretty much there. I had planned on doing writing the whole book. This originally came out with Sammy Publishing, mm-hmm. and my second book with them was Ghost Heart. Don, um, who was my editor, said I don't want to do two zombie books in a row with you because then you're going to be the zombie guy. You won't be able to get out of it. He said, let's do something different and then we'll return to the zombies in book three or four. And I had already started kind of working on Voices of the Dead. I had it mapped out and I still have the outline and everything, but I shifted gears and I wrote Ghost Heart. And then he said, well, let's not do zombies yet. Let's do something else. We'll do zombies again for book four. I said, okay. Then I wrote Night of a Thousand Beasts. And then Samhain went out of business, like literally a week after Ghost Heart was released. Man. So I was like, well, it was really hard. They gave me all my rights back, but it was kind of a weird thing. Like, what do I do with this book? And I have a series and I ended up putting Night of a Thousand Beasts out myself. I, I brought it to several other publishers and it was like this close and they we couldn't come to terms. I said, I'm just going to put it out because it's already done. It's been copy edited four times. So let's. Mm-hmm. I'll just put it out and move on. And then I've got distracted ever since. And then Marco at Sadelman and Company surprised me one day with an email asking me if he could put out dust of the dead again and i was like yeah and i told him about voices of the dead he's like oh my god i didn't know that so we're gonna see how this goes if this does well i'll, I'll finish voices of the dead and put that out so we'll see if there's enough of a, of a demand for it we will certainly do that i'd like to <laughs> That's awesome. now when what is your writing routine like do you have multiple things going on like are you working on a novel short story and the trying to die at once, do you have to kind of tell yourself, no, I'm only going to work on one thing? How do you go about handling projects? Well, I usually limit it. I, I limit my, my work to like one novel at a time and a short story. Otherwise, it becomes too much and I find the work suffers. So like if I'm doing a rewrite on a book, that's usually pretty much 90% of my brain mm-hmm. until I get it done. Other than like day job and work stuff that I do. I just feel it's better that way for me. I do I do have an idea log that's kind of crazy long. I know all writers have that like, oh my God, I'm writing. Oh my God, I got this great idea. Let me jump and start that. So I do an idea log. So I'll write it down enough to keep it and then I'll come back, go back to what I'm doing. Because otherwise I'll never get anything done. I, I found out the hard way. I have so many like half written novels that I need to go back to one day, but I distracted myself and I ruined it. So now I, I have that kind of policy. But exception would be is if somebody's like, hey, I need this story really fast. And, you know, it hasn't happened a lot, but they're like, I really need something. Somebody dropped out. Can you get me something in a month or something? Then I'll, I'll probably push my short story. Then I'll my personal one off and jump to that. But I don't have that problem, of course, with the novels. That's kind of up to me at this point. I don't have 
a lot of novel requests, you know, because they're a little bit, it's a whole other animal. But and as far as my writing routine goes, every day I write between five and 10 minutes in the morning before I do anything, pretty much on my phone before I even get out of bed. And I can usually at least deliver a page to a page and a half in, in that time, only because, you know, I, I have it simmering in me the, all the day before and the night before. And that adds up really quick. And sometimes during the day I get to more writing and sometimes I don't. But I figure if I get that that amount in, I've done something. And it, it really does. I know it's like, you know, go out. It's like the Japanese proverb, you, you know, do the tree at all the same time or a little every day. Mm-hmm. And my life at this point only gives me the choice of a little a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it little, is what it is. Yeah. I mean, and I'm the same way, but I want to start doing that because oftentimes I'll wake up early and I'll be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go downstairs and I'll do a little bit of writing. But I say work instead of so that doesn't mean just writing, you know, so I've just wasted, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes where, you know, I could have tapped into everything that had been there from the night. So I'm going to, I'm going to give that a shot. I'm going to see if I can start taking, see if I could do your little trick. Cause I think that'd be, I think that'd be great because then like, I always feel so much better after I get my workout in the morning because I was like, okay, it's done. I at least got something done. Even if it's not a hard workout, I got something done. Um, exactly. So I, I could see how having that done with the writing, how much better I would feel if I knew it was like, oh, well, man, I already got a page done today. That's awesome. Yeah, so. exactly. And, and, and that's it. And the workout mentality is the same thing. Actually, funny thing, because after I do that, I, I, I do resistance bands for five or 10 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't seem like a lot. But again, that every day or almost every day that adds up. And also, you know, you can, when you just wake up, your brain is still kind of in sleep mode. You're not in work mode. You're not in answering mode and pro mode you're kind of still in you mode and i think that that makes a difference in the writing because you're like okay i'm going to write i'm going to ease into this you don't have all the filters of the day or the fatigue Mm -hmm. and you know i can answer emails when i'm fatigued no problem i can do business i can set up meetings and do you know whatever else i need to do but it's much harder to write when my when i'm tired especially when your brain tired i find at the end of the day and you're like i want to write and you're like oh i just want to netflix something i'm i'm dying here dying i'm hungry i'm tired I want to sit up in front of a screen. I've been in the screen all day now, zooming and stuff, right? As we all have been during this pandemic. So it's great. I, I highly recommend it. I mean, everybody has a smartphone, right? You could do Google Docs or whatever. It's free. It's easy. And you, you can edit that stuff later. That's the other beautiful thing. That's the, that's, that's the part two to this. So I will write on the phone. I don't worry about punctuation or, or grammar or spelling. I just try to get something out because I can, I can edit tired too. That's easy. Right. I can go in and say, oh, you know, this, whatever, and format it. And then in the process of formatting, you're kind of doing draft two of that bit too. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of go, oh, I forgot to put this thing I was thinking in there. But you can do that a little tired too without getting the gist of it down. So I highly recommend that as a as a method. Cool. Yeah. And one thing I noticed this week, I wonder if you have the same problem, but there were a couple of days where I went to work on the Western, but I couldn't, I couldn't even think I couldn't get anything done, but it was because I was angry about something I saw on social media and, you know, oh, something God. I saw on the news and like, and I was so frustrated. I was like, I just let myself, like, I just ruined a whole day of being able to write because I am in a terrible place right now. Like, like my, you know, I, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm whatever else. I was like, and now I can't write anything. Do you ever struggle with that? Is there anything that does put you in a negative mood and you just can't write? Well, I I have exactly the same problem and I'm sure there's everybody else has the same. And I believe that's because social media and the news, both their currency is in the negative reaction. Mm -hmm. And if you put something up like everybody have a nice day, you get three likes. If you put up something like, oh man, I hate whatever political issues happening right now, 50. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and social media especially feeds off the negative and, and the whole, oh my God, you won't believe this controversy with this, that, or the other thing kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden you're sucked in and you go, oh my God, I don't believe that's really happening. And in, in, in our field, like, I don't believe this publisher is doing that, or I don't believe this author is a secret, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever, fill in the blank this week, what it's going to be. Right. And then you're, then you're off thinking about it and then you're worried about it. Crap. I can't post anything. It's a minefield crap, you know, and then you're thinking about your work. What if, what if they come after me next? And then before you know it, you're shut down, you're frozen. Mm-hmm. And, and your whole creative process is just shut down. And you're like, fuck it. I'm just gonna go play some Metallica and freaking bang my head for an hour and be done with this whole damn thing. 
So I have limited my social media tremendously. Just like I limit my writing, I really have limited Facebook and Twitter to literally about five to 10 minutes a day. I know that seems ridiculous, but again, you could, you could check pretty much anything that's pressing in that time and then move on. Because I found it was, it was, I was getting sucked into those things, those methods. Even if I wasn't commenting, it was ruining my day. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like, oh, they, they attacked this person and I'm thinking about it and I'm out driving around. I'm still thinking about it. Should I write something? Should I not? Right. And I'm thinking all this mental freaking currency I'm giving to this shit. You know, I could be mm-hmm. I could have written a freaking short story today with this amount, the same amount of brain passion that I have. What am I doing? I can't let this happen anymore. Life is short, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to give give them this. And the other thing as a writer, a couple of months ago, I thought, you know, Fuck these people. We're, we're giving them all this free writing. They're not paying us a penny a word or anything for this. We're giving them all this free content. That's true. You effers, you know, yeah. you're not paying us. We're writing all these stories and developing these stories for you. And you should be paying us, man. If we're telling stories and we're not getting anything out of it. But Ajita, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I, I don't want to keep giving into it. It's a necessary evil at this for sure. But I, I less is better, man. If you can wean yourself off of it, like any addiction, the better it is. It, we, we need to be on there for a certain amount of time and a certain amount of things. But yeah, if you can get out of there as much as you can get out of there. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, what's really funny about social media too. One last quick thought. I know I can talk forever. I noticed that a lot of the people that are like kind of very notable in the fields don't really do much social media engagement. Mm. which is interesting. They'll put stuff up, but they won't get into the comments and they won't reply to comments. They'll just put something up and then they'll back away for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Like I went to the museum and then back and they got like 300 things like from like the guy from Motley Crue, but he doesn't write back to anybody. Mm-hmm. You know? And you're like, I started seeing a pattern there. Like, well, okay, that's because they're, they're limiting it. They're going in, they're making like a, a, a you know, a food drop or something, you know what I mean? And then getting yeah. out of there. You're not sticking around to watch the natives go into a frenzy. Yeah. You know? You're just like, that's, hi guys. That's Bye. A good, that's a good idea. That's a, that's a good technique. And yeah, I'm going to go back to that. I used to, I used to be really good at that. I would spend five minutes. I would post my stuff, look and see like maybe three people's things, three friends and I'd share their stuff. And then like, I, I did my, you know, I did my job, but then I would feel bad sometimes. I, then I would go back the next day and respond to, you know, positive comments about whatever, I was like, man, it took me a whole day to even answer that. Like, am I being rude? Am I not being rude? But I was like, no, what? It's all, it's all make believe. It's all BS, anyhow. So, one thing that's important is us writing these stories, us getting these stories yeah. out there. So, screw everything else. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I think too, we, we have to remember what the, what it's called, social media. Mm-hmm. It's not selling media or sales. Right. Media. It's social media. Mm-hmm. So we have to realize that it's limited in what what we can do there for. Well, you know, promoting our works and stuff. It's it's really there more as a kind of party kind of a thing, a party atmosphere, or a debate right. school like like a college debate kind of form, versus buy my book or buy my record or buy my movie kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. It does a little bit of that, but I think there there are better ways that we're seeing and more effective ways where we can do that. And the traditional the traditional ways really still do work, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. So it's nice to use social media to point people to those traditional ways. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that's smart. Kevin Anderson had a question for you. For me? He, yeah. I, I, I asked yeah. the group yesterday if they had any questions. And Kevin, who is in, I think he's a San Diego chapter. Yeah. Uh, the C. Well, one of them was, what's the most difficult part about writing the story, the choose your own adventure? Then he also asked, what was the most difficult part about working with me? Might be the same question. Then what got you interested in horror? Was it a movie book event? creepy uncle. And the most important question, how do you know when it's done? He said, he's always struggling with that. Like when is your story done? When is your book done? Mm, Okay. Well, first of all, the worst part with the hardest part with working with you (laughs) is that it's been mostly virtual. Oh yeah. True. True. And and I kind of missed in the pandemic being able to kind of like go somewhere and like have coffee and kind of hash out and get some paper and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. I've missed that part. I think that's that everything else has been really super easy um, working with you. Seriously, it's it's been like a, a very, very enjoyable, very low friction situation. Awesome. Which is great. And I've collaborated before and it's been like, we just didn't click, the, the didn't work, we tried and it didn't, mm-hmm. you know, the writing style was not, didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this has been a great collaboration in that regard. I think our styles mesh. In fact, 
when I was reading the last draft, I was like, did I write that this part or did Mark write this part in places? So I was like, yeah. I don't remember if I wrote this or he did. I don't know, but it's good. But I don't know. I don't remember. And that's yeah. a good sign. That's a really good sign that we're mm-hmm. that we have a good a compatible style. The other question. Okay, so so the next question is, what got me into the moment that got me into horror was seeing Alien at a drive-through with my dad. And we up until then it was it was going to see Star Wars. We went to when Star Wars came out. My parents took us and we went to see it probably thirty or thirty times in the theaters. And they would just literally. We I remember we went to vacation to like North Carolina. They wanted to go to dinner. I'm like, we want to see Star Wars. So they put us in the movie theater, went to dinner, and then came and picked us up. And that movie, like, even to this day, while I'm watching it, my mouth moves to the dialogue because I had so imprinted. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. And I loved that. And then my dad said, well, we're going to, I want you to expand and watch some other movies. So he, he showed me Night of the Living Dead. And he kind of fell asleep because it was back when they did the midnight movies mm. and it was like two o'clock in the morning and it ended and I, sh- I remember shaking him and going dad oh my god this is crazy and and they killed him at the end and, and it was so cool to see a black dude you know and great and we were we talked until like five in the morning about it i was like this is really cool i loved it but of course it wasn't even even back in the 70s it wasn't scary it was just kind of cool and it was slower but it was a really cool story but then he said okay well then we can I you pass, we can go see some some more stuff. And that weekend we went to see a double feature with Demon Seed and then Alien at our drive-in. And Demon Seed was kind of dull until the, the baby was born out of the metal leg at the end. I was like, cool. Then Alien happened. And I, I don't think I moved a muscle for that two hours. I was like, oh, oh my God. It scared the hell out of me, but it was beautiful. It was amazing. I was I was seven years old and i fell deeply in love with ripley of course and i thought she was so cool because she was tough and cool she looked kind of like my mom you know and she reminded me of my mom a little and she's fighting this alien and oh my god this thing holy shit and i was walking you know going i wouldn't go past my my attic door because i was sure the xenomorph was going to get me and reach and pull me up and 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 i just knew at that moment like this was going to be something that was going to be a big thing for me for the rest of my life, like horror and being felt like this and the beauty and the majesty and the epicness, but the empowerment too, that I saw in that movie was really cool. And the artistry, which was amazing. And, and like full circle, my first, my first job out of, out of college was working for Ridley Scott. So it was like, for me, like, it was like all things came together. And, um, so that was, that's really what started. And, and from there, I, I, my parents, again, they came in and they said, okay, you like that? Here, read, read Carrie from Stephen King. And I finished Carrie. I was like, what's next? My mom gave me Interview with a Vampire, which I still have. And, and it's signed. I had Anne Rice sign it to me, too. And I was just hook, line, and sinker. I started my own stories at that point, And I was just totally all in. So thanks, Mom and Dad. I love you. And how do I know when a story is done? This is something that's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard to quantify. But in every, every one of my larger projects and most of my short stories, the line, the last line seems to come out of nowhere and I get chills and my, you know, I get kind of teary. I'm like, <gasps> that's it. Mm-hmm. There it is. And I know when it happened and it just feels like there, and, and often it's faster than I thought. It kind of creeps up and like, oh shit, that ended. That was, that was that. But it is, that's right. That's, it's there. Mm-hmm. And you, it's, it, it's, it's a weird feeling that, that I have. I, I don't know if others have, have experienced it in that way or if they kind of manufacture an ending, but that's how it's always worked for me. In most cases, it's been a surprise. Although with Ghost Heart, the only exception was with Ghost Heart, where early in the process, I literally wrote the last chapter. So I had a dream and I literally was seeing the words in my dream and I literally saw the last couple of sentences. Oh, wow. And I was like, holy crap, I better write this down. And I made sure it was like four o'clock in the morning and I wrote it out and it's pretty much word for word in the, the ending like that. That's cool. I don't know how the hell that happened, but it was just one of those like eerie, like weird things that's never happened before or since. It's usually been like I'm writing like Dust of the Die. I was writing like, oh, we stopped. That that's the conclusion. Oh man, okay, weird. So Kevin, I, I hope that helps kind of. But <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I, I I could definitely relate to that. Like knowing sometimes just yeah a very powerful powerful feeling just feeling like okay yeah that's it you know nailed it and maybe maybe it wasn't you know maybe it wasn't the best story but at that moment i felt like okay yeah that story is finished that's cool i could i could send it off to the editor now yeah yeah that's a good feeling but it it is weird though 
You know, mm-hmm. I, I love the quote from Alfred Hitchcock where they asked him the same question. He said that, oh, I never finish my movies. I just let them go. And I think that was such a great kind of like wisdom. Like, yeah, it does feel like that. Mm-hmm. It kind of, it, it's interesting, but that's, a, that's another great kind of perspective that I think is really on the note. Where can people go find more about you? Where should they go to go get your books, your writing? Is it johnpelisano.com? Is that the yeah. best place for them to go? And Amazon? Yeah, yeah ev- everything's linked there. So that's easy. All my social medias, of course, are, are I'm easily found. I'm the only John Palisano really so good for now. It's easy. <laughs> I, I do. My my uncle is also a John Palisano, but he writes he writes scientific stuff on plagues and stuff, which is w- kind of strange. But but he's written one or two books too. But yeah, but you'll know it's me. You'll know it's me for sure. Awesome. And why is who should be interested in the Horror Writers Association? Who would oh. that be a good fit for? Why would someone be interested in joining that? I, I think okay. So I, I'll start this off by saying. It's not for everybody, which may, which may seem controversial to people. It may not be a fit for every single person who comes aboard. And I think that that's an important thing, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, who it's a good fit for is those who are looking for a community of like-minded individuals now who, who are looking to kind of connect with others, who are looking for a tribe, who, who want to kind of like explore those kinds of relationships. Is, is, it, a, is it a one-shop one-stop shop for all the, you know, best sellerdom and, and success. No, nothing can do that. But the benefit would be just finding other people who are along the path with you. If that is something that's appealing to you, then it's good. That's not appealing to some people. Mm-hmm. Some people are truly lone wolves and they, they don't really have a need for that or a want for that. And that's okay. But for those that do, it can be a wonderful community and it's what you make it. Right. It's what you make it. I mean, I, I, I think the biggest thing to know about any organization is it's what you put into it. If you're going to go sit in a chair and go show me, you're not going to have much success. But if you go in there and you say, Hey, okay, hi, everybody. It's nice. And what can I do to get involved? Can I make the coffee? You know, can I bring donuts next time? You know, you start getting involved then you're going to get stuff back. But so I think it really, it really is up to people what they're, what, what they want to bring to the table too and what they're looking for. The nice thing is that it is pretty open if you're looking for a certain kind of thing. Like, let's say you're like, you know, I don't need all this stuff, but I need help with copy editing and really getting my grammar and my writing itself better. What can I do? You can reach out to people and there's resources for that. If you're like, you know what, I, I teach English. I really don't need grammar help or editing help. I just want to know where I can submit my shit to. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not going to rip me off. That's not going to look like they designed it, you know, in 1984 on a you know, Commodore 64 or something, you know, and with crayons or something, then there's that too, you know, or there's, you know, if you're like, I, I want to connect with some vet writers who've been through the ringer and I just want to kind of like hang out and maybe go out for drinks once a month and say, Hey, remember when Sam Hain fell apart and we all had to replace our books in other places, you know, that sort of thing. There's that too. So I think those are where it would be a good fit for long story long as always with me. That's good. <laughs> I appreciate one of the things I think maybe on this last year or two, I realized was how much more I enjoy interacting with other authors, whether it, whether it's an interview like this or the, the mentor program we have, the HWA, I've done that twice and I've made some good friends through it, you know, the mentees and like, it's just been, it's been cool. It's been positive being able to hear like what someone else is going through and like, oh, wow, he feels the same way about that or you know just you sharing that little thing about how you start the morning just being able to connect with another like-minded individual not saying we all have the same beliefs or anything like that but another writer for me that has been big good and you know it is a very specific calling and and i think it is important to a lot of people to know they're not alone in it even we're all very different human beings but to know that we're not crazy for for you know getting this call and pursuing it because it, it really, you know, and, and how you, how you define the success in it is different for everybody too. And I, I think that that's, that's a really important thing for us. And I, I'm kind of a weird thing too, because I'm kind of anti-competitive mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, which is weird w- w- when it comes to the arts. I don't really like Academy Awards and other awards. I'm not going to mention them because of obvious reasons, but I think that art shouldn't, 
being a comp a competition because first of all there's there's room for plenty of stories and what i like and what you like may be different mm. and it can change from year to year right. you know as our tastes evolve you know and so we, we're not in competition with each other i don't feel i think we should really be lifting each other up and i love there's a great quote from stevie nicks again back to the rock and roll with me and they asked her recently what did you think of you know joan jet and what did you think of this person and and you know heart and all these you know people when you you know weren't they like weren't you just pissed off at pat benatar and stuff and she went oh no those were my friends and they're still my friends we were all going through this together we made a pack like we're going to look out for each other and talk to each other and they're like oh we heard that everybody was at their throats and you know the rolling stones hate the beatles and stuff and then you realize no they were all kind of like talking on the phone all the time and hey what you know what did you do in this situation and stuff and mm -hmm. i kind of look at the, the writers the same way that i don't see like somebody else's success is like impeding in mine i i see it as a great kind of gateway for others to hopefully find more of our works mm -hmm. I mean, the bookstores are huge especially online and they they always need new content which is great which gives plenty of room for us and for every big success in the genre that legitimizes us even more true because if josh mallerman comes out and he's getting netflix deals and he's getting huge deals and he's selling tons of copies we can point to josh when people say oh her <clears throat> right and you go well look at josh yeah. He's got Sandra Bullock in this movie on Netflix. Bangul, mm -hmm. right? You don't tell me that this ain't a legit genre. That's that's you know, it's good stuff. People love it. It's you know, it's not just Edgar Allan Poe from you know two hundred years ago. It's not just Freddie and Jason from the eighties. It's vital now, mm -hmm. very vital. And I think that helps everybody. And of course, Josh is stellar. He he loves. He helps everybody. He, he, you know, he's just a wonderful person, but there, there's many examples of, of, you know, we're seeing Haley Piper and Eric LaRocca now and, and a lot of new, uh, new writers coming out and, and it's really empowering to see successes, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure where I was going with that, but. I don't know, but it was not, oh, about the horror writers and just, and who might want to join the HWA, but that was perfect. Awesome. <laughs> so I will put, I'll put the link for the Horror Writers Association. I'll put the link for your website on here i think we will go out i always go out on a story and then i was like well let's just go out on trying to die in the pandemic so you helped me choose the narrator for that one we selected him together i believe his name right. is aj carter right uh, i will put the first three chapters the and that's the hard thing with the audio book right for try not to die because you have to you're supposed to choose your chapter and what your choice is and so that makes it a little bit difficult but so today we're going to go with chapters one the decision is chapter two and then chapter three. You guys will get it as you go along. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. You could get the book on Amazon. The audio book is available everywhere, I believe. Yeah. But John, thank you so much for coming on. I do appreciate you taking the time for this. appreciate you working on the Try Not to Die's bite-sized story, as well as the, the two books. So thank you so much. And thank you too, man. Have a good one. Chapter one. Fog banks roll down the hillside as the first rays of winter sun stretch across San Francisco Bay. Gold and amber lights come to life inside houses along the shore. Everyone on the ship is required to wear a mask, but I don't do it on our balcony. Who's going to see me anyway? I love leaning on the railing a hundred feet above the water, the chilly breeze waking me up. It smells clear and salty in a way that makes me glad to be alive. The world is my own. The only sounds are the waves lapping against the hull and the gentle creaking of the cruise ship. The city remains disturbingly quiet, its streets empty. No cars, no people. Even from our distance, it's obvious. The scariest part is that it's not just San Francisco. The whole world is shut down in quarantine, same as us aboard the Aria. We are forbidden to dock for fear the heliovirus ravaging so many people on board might spread farther on land, where hospitals and morgues are overwhelmed. Someone coughs nearby. There's always someone coughing. But this is from our cabin. Dylan? Mom asks, her voice muffled by the curtains and glass door. You out there, honey? 
I pull up my face mask as I enter the cabin. So warm inside, even without the heat cranking. This cabin seemed so much bigger two weeks ago. But there isn't much besides the bathroom and the main room with the master bed and two bunk beds stacked above it. Mom sits halfway up in the big bed, wearing her fuzzy white pajamas. Dad's beside her curled up toward the wall, while June rests directly above her on the left bunk, earbuds in, eyes closed, mask on tight. Morning, I say, happy to see Mom's looking a bit better, although her eyes are still bloodshot. I didn't want to wake you. Seems like the sleep helped. A bit, she says. Finally feel like I can eat and keep it down. Let me grab the breakfast. I open the front door, but there aren't any trays. Most of the cabins along the hallway have trays outside, but none of them have our danger, risk of infection signs stapled to their doors. Mom says, What's wrong? I close the door to stop letting in the cold air. They didn't drop any food off. They're an hour late, Mom says. Can you go to the buffet deck and get something to tide us over? I'm always looking for a chance to escape the coop. Sure thing. Dad rolls over with a groan. I'd eat cardboard and ketchup right now. I'm so hungry. I ask. How are you feeling? He wipes the sleep from his eyes, which are even redder than Mom's. Tired, mostly. June, who's two years younger than me, but never shy about sharing her opinion, pulls out an earbud and asks Dad, What's your temperature? Mom says, Relax, sweetie. He just woke up. June sticks her head over the edge of the bed. And why isn't your mask on? She says, her panic coming out as anger. Most people would be frustrated by June's heightened anxiety, but Dad plays it cool and puts up the homemade mask resting on his chest. Our high school's Tiger's logo covering his mouth. I can't sleep with it on. Plus, you know I never stay sick for long. Mom grabs her mask from under her pillow and slips it on before June notices. Both she and June have the legit kind with filters. Mom says, Yep, another day or two and we'll both be good as new. Yeah, I say. Now if we could only get off this boat. I'm about ready to swim back. We'll get through this, Dad says. In fact, I feel fine enough to get up and help you today. No, I, I've got it. I grab the tag hanging around my neck and say, Besides, you don't have one of these. The tag has my picture, along with a big C superimposed on it, which means I'm clear to walk the civilian areas of the cruise ship. I need to check in with staff anyway. I hate that this all falls on you, Mom says. It's no problem, I say. Dad stifles his cough and says, We really appreciate you taking care of us. Mom's always the glue that holds us together, but I can see she's struggling, her mood shifting with the tide. They're treating us worse than animals, she cries. Almost to myself, I say, And to think only a few nights ago we were looking out at the Alaskan shoreline from the captain's restaurant and eating a five-star meal. Dad sits up next to Mom, rubbing his forehead. What I miss is the coffee. I've had a splitting headache from the withdrawal. I can't believe they aren't delivering food, Mom says, sounding a little scared. What do they expect us to do if everyone in the cabin is infectious? Probably hoping we'll die, Dad says, his skin still a few shades too pale. It'll be less paperwork for the cruise company. Mom swats his arm. Harold! June sides with Mom, just as mad. Don't say that! Shush, honey. Mom points at the wall behind her. You'll wake the Bordens. June puts in her earbud and lies down, blanket over her face. Well, don't talk about dying. We've probably all lost loved ones, but June's the only one who knows for sure. Her best friend and her entire family confirmed dead before communication was cut. Dad says, Sorry, June. I won't talk about it anymore. Mom takes his hand and holds it on her lap. We'll get through this. Yep, glad I got you guys. Dad looks at me and says, Be careful out there, kid. Oh! The final O oh, triggering a bout of deep coughing. Even though he puts a fist to his mouth, I head for the door. I'm out of here. 
The blast of fresh air makes me feel cleansed and safe. It's fairly early, but this time last week, there would have been plenty of people walking the corridors. Now all I see are a couple of gray-haired folk hurrying to their cabin. Even having never been a huge people person, I am a little unsettled by the emptiness of the ship. There are three thousand of us, no telling how many sick or dead. The captain keeping everything hush-hush, probably to quell any mutiny. The hallway tilts just a bit. We are anchored, but we're still a ship, subject to currents and tides. I'm just glad none of us get seasick. I'd never admit this to any guys on the team, but I recognize all the small decorative additions to the ship. Everything is opera-based. Up ahead on the left is a framed photo of Placido Domingo singing full force. A few cabins down is the floating dancing couple statue. I'm getting close to the checkpoint when I pass my favorite, an alabaster relief of the comedy and tragedy drama masks, representing the two extremes of the human psyche. A middle-aged man and teenage daughter turn the corner, headed my way, cardboard boxes in hand. I stick to the right of the hallway and give them a wide berth and nod hello. Neither one acknowledges me. Eyes straight ahead like they couldn't be bothered. Social distancing has made everyone toss manners overboard. That's for sure. Around the corner, the hall opens onto a large inner deck. There's Beethoven's, a bar-slash-restaurant. It's dark, save for the video machines on its exterior. They're still set up to let us gamble, aren't they? That still works. Naturally. Past the unattended customer service desk along the starboard railing, there's a line of spread-out passengers, waiting to be examined and passed for travel within the aria. We're advised to keep at least two arm lengths between each person, but it's a bit more squished, people anxious to get through. Everyone's wearing face masks, with the majority also wearing surgical gloves. I freeze, thinking I'd forgotten my mask before I realize I'm wearing it. This is becoming too normal. I take my place behind an elderly couple. There are about a dozen people ahead of them. The medical team is at a table, all wearing protective masks and gloves. The man working the line raises a gun-like thermometer to a woman's forehead and presses the trigger. It beeps. He looks at the LCD display, nods, checks a mark on a list, then takes another scanner out. The woman shows her ID badge, and the tech scans it. Giving her the thumbs up, she nods, thanks them, and carries onward to the dining area, where I'm guessing most of us are headed. Most people in line are occupied with their phones, killing time with games. Mine's been in my drawer since Wi-Fi went out. No need for the reminder of how useless it is. There is one guy with his mask down, but I'm not surprised. It's the same meathead who was being obnoxious in the arcade last week. He's college-aged, but looks more like a dropout. He's wearing a tank top, despite it being so cold. Any chance to show off his muscles? The guy's saying something to the person in a baggy blue hoodie in front of him. They don't respond, so he taps their shoulder. When the person turns around, I see it's Amy. A couple strands of her curly red hair sticking out from beneath the hoodie. Instead of the beautiful smile she shared with me, she gives the guy nothing but a blank stare above her mask, her baby blue eyes red and watery like she's been crying. The meathead gives a little wave and Amy turns back around. Because he's a moron who doesn't understand social cues, the guy taps her shoulder again. Amy's dealing with enough and shouldn't have to put up with this. If I ask him to back off, I can just about guarantee he'll cause a scene. If I ask Amy to come back with me, there's a good chance she'll think I'm a coward. Time to make a decision. To remind him about his mask and point out that Amy would like her space, go to Chapter 2. To ask Amy to join me at the end of the line and let security deal with the guy, skip to Chapter 3. I absolutely hate confrontations, but no one else is going to say anything. And what would Amy think if she saw me just sitting back here like a coward? The guy in the tank top taps Amy's shoulder again. He's looking kind of pissed she's not responding. I hurry over, but keep a safe distance. Nice as I can, I say. Excuse me. 
His beady brown eyes zero in on me. What? He says, an obvious challenge. I just wanted to say... Now it's his whole steroid-fueled body staring at me. Say what? Amy says, Dylan? I keep my eyes on him. That it looks like she wants her space. We're supposed to have two arm lengths between each person. He holds up one fist, then the other. One, two, he says as he pops up his middle fingers. There you go. Amy says, Forget it, Dylan. Yeah, Dylan, he says, mocking her. All these adults in line and no one says a word. Not about to lose face in front of Amy, I say, Guess you didn't notice how everyone else has a mask on. Now you're going to try to tell me what to do? He dismisses me with a wave of his hand. Go run to your mama. Amy comes to my side and says, Let's just go to the back of the line. Yeah, go back there with your dumb bit. I'm not scared of you. I say, the words just slipping out. He steps forward, fists clenched. How about now? I ease Amy behind me. No, but I want our space. Hey! It's the security guard at the medical table. He stays seated and says, Knock it off! The big guy takes another step, only a foot between us. This better? He asks, his breath indicating he's out of toothpaste. I stay calm and say, We're leaving. You're being an idiot. Thwack! His spit flies in my face before I blink. Every droplet full of potential contagions. All I see is red, and I shove him as hard as I can, running him toward the railing. Amy screams, No! But there's no stopping. We're flying for the railing when he spins us around. My feet can't backpedal fast enough, and he's like a bulldozer driving me backward. I'm falling down when my low back smashes into the top rail. The crack louder than a bat snapped in half. The pressure in my low back is immediate. The pain intense as I tip over the edge, reaching out for anything to grab. Dylan! Amy shouts as my world turns upside down. My body plummets toward the ocean, and I take a deep breath, putting my hands together for the dive. I slice through the water until I'm past the dark blur of the boat's bottom. I try to kick my legs, but they're not working. Just dead weight pulling me down. I push through the pain and flail my arms, but I'm not going up. The surf is so far away. If I keep it up, I'll be out of air. Only hope is someone diving in. I've held my breath for a minute before, but this pressure is going to make me burst. The surface floats farther away. It remains unbroken. The correct choice was to ask Amy to join me at the end of the line and let security deal with the guy. Go to Chapter 3. I call Amy's name and she spins around. I ask her, Can you come here a second? She walks right toward me without even glancing at Tank Top Guy. Her eyes seem to smile despite all the red. Oh, my Eagle Scout to the rescue. I take a couple steps back so she can have my spot. Keeping it playful, I say, Sorry I didn't beat my chest and challenge him to a duel. Oh, a duel. Perhaps after breakfast. Anything for my lady's hand, I say, wishing I could hold her hand and hug her close. But there's no contact allowed outside of cabin mates. She raises her eyebrows. I didn't realize I was yours. I'm not sure what Amy is to me, just that she's special, someone I can't imagine ever forgetting. We only met eight days ago, but in that time, I've learned more about her than anyone else in my life. But instead of saying all that, or even something witty, I ask, You doing okay? Is it your mom? She nods. They took her last night. I don't even know where. How high was her temperature? 103. Wouldn't break. We catch up to the rest of the line. I tell her, she'll be okay. That's what everyone said about my coach. He was younger than my mom and in way better shape. Yeah, but she's got you and your family to live for. 
My dad's staying in the cabin with my little brother until I get back, she says. Then he's going to track her down. No food delivery this morning? Everybody I talk to says passengers are being ignored if the crew thinks they're sick. We're only a few people from the checkpoint. Next up is a heavyset man in matching green jacket, sweats, and mask. They take his temperature and the tech shakes his head. Come on, the man in green says. I feel fine. I get hot with the mask on. I'm sorry, sir, the tech says. The threshold is too high. You're going to need to be evaluated. Can you please step to the left and into triage? Amy and the elderly couple back away from him. Amy bumps into me and says, Be careful. This is bullshit, he says to the tech. I didn't pay all this money to be treated like this. I don't have to comply. Please, sir, the tech says. We will take care of you, but you can't be around other passengers. I feel my forehead to see if I somehow developed a fever overnight. My fingers are damp, my skin clammy. The man pulls his face mask down, reveals a thin brown mustache and chubby cheeks. I don't give a damn, he says. A security guard with poofy brown hair and a white polo gets up from the end of the table and approaches. Sir, you're creating a scene and you need to follow orders, he says, his voice muffled behind the face mask and shield. The man's cheeks burn bright red. I'm tired of all this. We've put up with enough already. You have no right. I'm afraid we have every right, the guard says. No, Scott, mustache man says, reading the name embroidered on the guard's chest. You don't. The door to the small office to our right opens, and a man in protective gear walks out, his blue Coast Guard uniform setting him apart from the rest of the crew wearing gray and white. That's enough of that, he says. He walks over calmly, his hand resting on his holstered pistol. Please put your face mask back on, he says, relaxed but stern, not a voice to disobey. I'm Officer Downing, the Sea Marshal of the Aria, and you must comply immediately. The man does as he's told, but narrows his eyes. This is bullshit, he says. I have no problem taking you into custody, but I wouldn't recommend it, Downing says. The holding bay is anything but pleasant. You're going to hear from my lawyer when this is all over. That's fine, sir, Downing says, but right now you need to accompany me into triage. Mustache follows Downing to the large building down the hall, cursing the entire way. We can still hear him ranting when they shut the big wooden door. I tell Amy, I bet someone in there could tell us where your mom is. She says, Yeah, or not let us leave because we entered a restricted area without proper equipment. I'd read enough of the warning signs covering the boat to know the message by heart. You're up, I say, leaving off the good luck so I don't jinx her. The scanner beeps and Amy gets the big C. I step up to the desk and say, Good morning. The tech raises the temperature gun, focusing on my forehead, avoiding eye contact. Crap, I better be okay. If I come down with the heliovirus, I'll be trapped in the room with my sister and parents for God knows how long. No more batting cage. No more Amy. We'll be at their mercy for food. Behind the door, Mustache keeps up his tirade. They aren't going to like that. Good luck having them help you after making this much of a scene. The temperature gun beeps. It's got my reading. My heart skips and my belly feels empty. I know I should be fine, but there's always the chance. 98-3, the text says. Great, I'm safe. For the next 24 hours, at least. The tech puts down the temperature gun and uses the scanner on my ID card. The sea flashes for a moment when the laser light hits it. If it's not charged every 24 hours, the sea fades so that everybody can see at a glance you're not cleared. Have a wonderful day, I say. Again, the tech ignores me. I hate how cold they are. I guess they have to be, which is understandable but it certainly does not instill confidence that we're anything more than meat for them to deal with. Come on, Amy says, pointing to the people queued up ahead for the buffet station. 
At the next intersection, we pass a man standing against the corner, black pants and trench coat, matted brown hair. We swing wide, but I still catch a whiff of sulfur and seaweed, like he just swam through sewage. The line for breakfast is moving fast. There are no more open trays of food, only prepackaged cardboard boxes being rationed out by a man wearing protective gear on the other side of the counter. The worker asks how many I need, and I tell him three. Amy taps me on the shoulder. Don't forget one for yourself. Right, I laugh and grab another. Thanks. A sad-eyed woman in protective gear works the checkout area. She zaps my ID tag with her scanner and nods. Amy's right behind me, carrying her three boxes. We get outside the buffet, and the creepy guy's still at the corner. He catches me looking. I nod hello, so it's not as strange. He nods back with the eyes of a bully, almost like he's challenging me. It's probably how I look when I try to throw off the pitcher and lure him into bringing the heat. Amy says, Want to find somewhere to sit? I turn so I can't see the guy anymore. Don't have to worry if he's watching. Shouldn't we get back to feeding our families? Like two mama birds, she says. The creep keeps checking the hallways, like he's at bat, reading the field. Look for vulnerable areas to exploit. That's Coach Robbins inside my head. Come on, Amy says, taking us away from the guy. Let's find a place to sit down here. I could use a few minutes. I've got a terrible feeling in my gut, but try to ignore it. Absolutely. She asks, How about the bench? We sit, the dampness soaking through my sweats. The creep's still there on the railing some twenty yards away, his head on a slow swivel. Amy says, You look worried. Notice anything strange about the guy out there? You mean besides his awful funk? Yeah, that was pretty gross. What does he do in the real world? She asks, a fun game we've been playing while passenger watching. Easy. He's a preschool teacher. She gives the cutest little snort. Good guess, but he's actually a stay-at-home dad of four crippled quadruplets. I love hearing Amy happy, but I'm having a hard time letting this go. I nod in the direction the man keeps looking and ask, You happen to know what's down that way? She lifts her eyes and taps her temple. Hums like it's helping her remember. Cafeteria, ice cream parlor, security bathrooms. Wow, I'm impressed. Amy smiles and points at the sign with directional arrows. Not too hard. Been reading for years. I can teach you if you like. I just got a bad feeling about that guy. Think he might steal a banana split? I know, I'm being ridiculous. If it'll make you feel better, we should check it out, she says. We'll be Eagle Scout and Junior Detective. I bet we can even stop by the security office to get our honorary badges. I say, I'm sure it's nothing. You ready to head back? I'll walk you. What a gentleman, she says. But let's eat first. No sense in carrying an extra box the whole way. The creepy guy is still at the corner. And then head back? Or find out where they're keeping my mom and save my dad the trip. Time to make a decision. To investigate the suspicious activity, go to Chapter 4. To check out the off-limits area to find out about Amy's mother, go to Chapter 5. To eat breakfast with Amy, then head to her cabin, go to Chapter 6.